What is happening? How are we doing? Uh, before the regular show, so a minute of your time, uh, in a few weeks, two or three weeks, you will hear an episode that I did with Adam Lewis Green, who is the person behind uh, Bibliotheca, which is a different version of the Bible. You'll find links to that in this episode's show notes, and that's at bibliotheca.co. But I would encourage you to do that because you'll want to know what the giveaway is. So in that conversation and throughout the organization of it, Adam had said, you know, let's give one of these away to a listener of the show. And that's a big deal. Like A, it's an expensive version of the Bible, but B, it's beautiful. And C, it has become one of my favorite versions of the Bible because I see things that I don't normally see that way because the verses and the and the chapters are just gone. So it's like I'm reading without interruption and I'm not explaining that well, but you'll see what I mean. So here's kind of the rules for entry, beginning with this episode and the next two. And so that third episode will be Adam Lewis Green's. Every time that you either rate and review the show on iTunes uh, during this time period, or Podbean, or anywhere else that you do, and I don't know how I'll keep track of those because I don't get alerted to those, so just let me know that you did that. Every time that you do that, I'm going to go ahead and put your name in the hat for the drawing. The easier way, though, and I think the way that most of you will do it, is to just share this episode or the next few. And so for those of you that already share the episodes, congratulations, your name is going to be entered in the hat easily. But for those that don't normally share the show with others, just share the show, tag the podcast, you know, either on Facebook or Twitter, when you share it. And every time that that happens, I'm going to enter that name into a hat for the drawing. And so I'm really excited to see what happens, excited to see where it goes. So here we go. End of that. Begin regular episode. The gospel is liberation from patriarchy. That's the entire case I'm trying to make. That from Genesis to Revelation, there is a progression in scripture where patriarchy in the beginning of the Bible is the assumed ordering of creation. And by the time we get to Revelation, patriarchy has been dismantled fundamentally and that Jesus is the linchpin in the middle of the biblical narrative that turns the entire direction of scripture away from patriarchy into liberation. And so all of that to say, if you don't understand the cultural context of scripture, and I feel like everybody in every tradition says this, but it actually takes a lot of work to dig in and do the hard study of the biblical culture. But unless you do that, you really don't understand the Bible. Hello, my family. I'm excited that you're here. I'm going to make this one short and sweet because to be honest, I'm biased, but and I just I really liked this conversation. And so I want to, I really just want to get into it. So just a couple quick announcements. Just a minute ago, you heard the giveaway. Do that. Share the show. Do what you can to get the entries. Um, I'm really excited for that to happen. And then next week, you'll hear the interview with Adam Lewis Green. Another fantastic conversation. It is such a privilege to be able to do this. So, so you may, if you follow the show on Facebook or social media or, or anywhere else, you'll notice that recently... I, well, I probably bit off more than I could chew, but um, I went ahead and made a store for the show. And so if there's anything that you want on there, shoot me an email and be like, hey, you know what I would like? I would like to have this and I will do what I can to make sure that it happens. So I've made a few things. It is not really my skill set. And so I am uh, sending out ideas to people that know what they're doing, but you'll find links to that uh, at can I say this at church.com. You just hit the button for store and Get yourself whatever you like. Uh, I mostly did it because I wanted to have a few of the things there, and I figured if I'm going to go to all that trouble, let's do it. 
So give me your feedback. I'd love to have it. Today's guest is Brandon Robertson. So welcome him back to the show. Uh, today's guest is a returning guest. And so, uh, gosh, 40, 50 episodes ago, uh, maybe 40 episodes ago, I uh, had him on and we had a conversation about what inclusion looks like, what the gospel looks like and how that matters when we talk about homosexuality. And today we revisit that, but we really dig in deep and couple caveats about this conversation. So I intentionally did very little editing uh, because there is a part about two thirds of the way in that I'm uncomfortable with, but I needed to stay genuine. So uh, it is what it is. And so I don't want to belabor the point. Really excited about this conversation. Here we go. Brandon Robertson. Robertson, welcome back to the show. You're on a list of this is a small list, maybe eight, nine people of people that have been on twice. And so, a, thank you for having faith and trust in me twice. But b, welcome back, man. Thanks so much. It truly is an honor. I loved the last conversation. I'm looking forward to jumping into this one. So perfect. So I will skip through because if people want to, I'm sure they can go down in the show notes or on the Google, and they can find you. Kind of talk about you know, your story that brought you to the current version of Brandon. So I will save those 10 minutes um, so we can talk about more formative things. But I am curious, what has what has been going on since the last time we talked? And the last time we talked was right after um, True Inclusion came out, which was a fantastic book. I like the way it talked about the kingdom of God and what that should look like. So what has changed, you know, in your life? What are the big things that have happened from A to B? You know, not a ton has has changed. Um, I have been, True Inclusion came out in September and it's now May. Uh, and so I have this addiction of writing now and we just put out this new book, The Gospel of Inclusion, um, a couple weeks ago. And so um, really this has been a year of talking about this idea of inclusion, both from a Christian theological standpoint. And um, I have been getting back into my second love, which is uh, this political social organizing field, and I've had some opportunities um, to be bringing people together in closed-door meetings and trying to see how we can work to facilitate more inclusive platforms and policies, both in the church and in society as a whole. So basically just being a pastor talking about inclusion and seeing how we can uh, spread this message and, uh, and this ethos of inclusion further. So to break apart that tangent before we dive in, is that I, so? I hear you talking about you know social and political behind closed doors, trying to make people talk about inclusivity. I feel like that has to be frustrating. It is. Do you find it frustrating? Like, what does that actually look like? Because I think if I tried to do it um, with the circles that I try to include, I, I feel like yeah. it would be similar to just running into a chain link fence over <laughs> and over and over again. Totally. Well, for me, like I feel like there is this. A crazy group of people that are called and anointed to use spiritual words to do uh, reconciliation and inclusive work. Uh, and so from very early on, I've had this bridge building spirit. Um, and for me, I think I've done it long enough now. I've been kind of be in these closed door meetings with stakeholders on the other side, so to speak, uh, for about eight years now. And this past year has actually been really amazing. Um, just one example is one of the big projects I've been working on is bringing 
10 evangelical megachurch pastors into a room with 10 LGBT Christian leaders. Um, and we did that uh, a couple months ago in New York City. And the amount of change work that was done in a one-day uh, one span was just incredible. That this entire group, you could literally watch hearts and minds changing before your eyes over the course of a day of spending time together. And uh, that group's about to get back together in uh, September, I believe. So it's, I finally got into a place where I think we figured out how to do this, at least with these two particular groups. And it's really encouraging and exciting to see change happening. And this, uh, like I said, this gospel of inclusion spreading in ways that I hope will actually make a change in people's lives and in our world. I'm going to try to overgeneralize that. So you're telling me that when people that disagree come together in good faith, fellowship together, and try to hear the other person's point of view, that people actually listen to each other. Uh, oddly enough, I feel like that's what the church should be. Um, so I, I, I'm probably oversimplified, over simple, simple, I don't know what the word is. I'm over, I'm over reducing that. That's still a bad metaphor. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm overdoing it. But I, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, I think if more people did that, um, there'd be a lot less shouting and possibly yeah. like the world would actually just be better. Talk to me about, so your most recent book, so The Gospel of Inclusion, is, well, I, I wasn't really sure how big it would be. And then when I got it, I'm like, well, this is really small. Uh, and so I read it yeah. really quickly because I, I just read fast. And then as soon as I was done, I started again. And I, and I know I've, I've said on social media, like I just finished my third reading of it, um, partly because it's easy to read, but partly because like it's it's addictive. Like Dr. Gushy at the beginning basically said, you know, like this is a text that takes a different approach than most of the texts that you'll read, including some of your prior work, you know, of we're just going to flesh this out really, really, really theologically. Um, but you take a different tact. So what are you trying to get at with the gospel of inclusion, or specifically with this piece? Yeah, for me, um, I, I've always hated reading really long books. And so the first part of what you asked, um, I kind of made this vow to never write super long books, especially long theological books. So uh Let's see how long I can keep uh, sticking to that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, for this book was really, it's it had a twofold purpose in the world. One, um, I kind of felt like I cheated in writing this book because it was just my master's thesis, essentially fleshed out a little bit more. Um, but this is what I spent three years studying and paying lots of money to dig in and do the research on um, in grad school. But it came out of this passion when I realized that as I was trying to reconcile my own faith and sexuality, I really realized that in order for me to do that, it required a complete deconstruction of my evangelical faith, that it wasn't enough to change my mind about a few passages. of I actually, I suspect of my inherited conservative theology. And so I started doing this work of digging into the culture and the context through which the gospel originally emerged to try to see the nuances of what Jesus was actually getting at, who the historical person of Jesus was and what his message actually looked like in the first century Greco-Roman world. And I realized really quickly that it's not a stretch to say that the entire purpose of what Jesus was trying to do in his socio-political context 
was to tear down an oppressive system and show there's a different way of ordering the world that would lead to human flourishing. Um, I think that's one level of the gospel, definitely. And so this book really is my attempt to, in a very brief way, um, show how things like the crucifixion and uh, dig into the layers of meaning that were available there um, to see how Jesus, even in going to the cross, was performing a symbolic action of deconstruction of patriarchy and hatred of women. And, um, and yeah, that was my goal in this book was that the, to bring the reader to a point where by the end of it, they at least have their appetite whetted enough to begin digging deeper into the gospels and uh, the message of Jesus and seeing what else might lie beneath the surface that could help us create a more just and generous, a more equal uh, church and world. So the problem with that, though, is those books are long books when they dig into that. <laughs> so um, I'm sitting here while you were yeah. saying that, thinking, you know, all right, so if you don't want to write long books, but there's enough in this master's, which I didn't know it was your master's thesis, but there's enough in here that I think you could flesh it out into a tome. And so all you do is you take this big, huge star on the front and you rotate it to the left. Just change the cover so that as you line them up, you know, as you finish from, you know, volume one to volume 12, it's the full star on the binding of the book. So you can take that, you can run with it. They're all short, but you read them together as a huge boy. There you go. I, that's I'll what I think you should do. <laughs> I give it away to somebody else. I don't want it. <laughs> so donate it to somebody that needs it. Um, don't Let me rephrase that. I would love to have it and I do need it, but give it to somebody that needs it more. Um, so you talk a lot in the beginning, and this comes up often uh, or at least it came up a lot at the beginning of the show for me. So a definition of uncleanliness. And so I hear a lot of people say, you know, it's unnatural, it's unclean. People that practice homosexual acts are just quote unquote unclean. And you break that apart briefly at the beginning. And so I feel like that is necessary because our fear of other uh, is related not just to LGBTQ, it's related to anyone that doesn't look like us. Uh, and oftentimes LGBTQ I think is just an easy target because culturally it's a target in many cultures. Uh, and so it's the one that we can all point fingers at as opposed to, to take a bad metaphor of the NFL, like it's, it's the Jersey we can root against, even though the teammates on my Jersey, we don't really look at until I'm done beating the Browns. So how would you definition of what most people call unclean? And then how do you kind of reframe that? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that, and I try to, again, very briefly trace this in the beginning of the book, that this whole idea of clean and unclean emerges in the Hebrew Bible out of a culture in which uh, purity, this ritualized sense of purity is something that was very important, not just to the Hebrew people, but to people in surrounding societies. They had their version of what made them ritually pure and clean. But the thing that we failed to understand, even though the Christian uh, scripture, the Christian Bible, has plenty of writing uh, of the Apostle Paul and Peter and Jesus himself saying this way of organizing the world is outdated and it's not true. It doesn't originate from God. It comes from humans. Uh, for some reason, we as humans seem to have this propensity 
to want to create this sense of in-group and out-group, this uh, clean and unclean. And I think you're right, in um, Western culture at least, modern Western culture, homosexuality is easy to be to use as the unclean, primarily because uh, I think that a lot of heterosexual people just have this uh, inherited ick factor where gay love or LGBT sex and love is something a lot of heterosexual people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. And so when it's brought up, um, a lot of people's minds jump to that. And it's easy to demonize something you have no experience with and that you find personally unappealing. And I think that we see that throughout the book, actually, as I tried to outline in, in the first century Greco-Roman world, there was a lot of uh, separation and demonizing and marginalizing of people based on not just sexuality, but sexual practice itself. What role you played sexually in a relationship was how your identity and value socially was defined in ancient cultures. And uh, as much as we think that we've evolved today, I still think we, um, in 2019, United States of America, still have this uh, idea in our subconsciousness that says, if it's us, if somebody's embodying something sexually that we don't understand or we don't find appealing, that they are unclean and impure. And then we begin adding religious definitions to that and saying God says they're unclean and impure. And sex and this propensity to divide and uh, label in and out is just a really powerful way to gain power and organize society. Um, and, and yet, I don't think it's the way that God created or intended the world to be, even though the church itself has spent so much energy and time and spilt so much blood, frankly, defending this structure of clean and unclean. And so this is what I found myself keep coming back to. As people walk through the clobber passages, and I don't want to flesh those out, A, because we don't have enough time, and B, because they're just low-hanging fruit that anyone can Google. Just Google clobber passages and just get after it. You talk about its relationship between patriarchy. Like a lot of those passages are deeply related to the cultural context. Matter of fact, you quote somebody, and I forget where is it. Hold on, I'm going to find it. Um, you quote a different person. Come on, page flip for me. Dr. Christopher, how do I say his last name? Juan? Yuan? Yuan, yeah. I did it wrong both times. Dr. Christopher Yuan um, always said, (laughs) quote, context isn't just king. It's the whole deck of cards. But I know that as I'd necessarily, you know, talked with people or read about it, I had never really connected the dots between the patriarchal aspects of those Levitical and other biblical passages that people use to demonize people that do same-sex type form of relationships. How does that relate? Like, so if someone's listening and they're like, okay, so what does the quote-unquote patriarchy, because we use those words differently today, I think, you know, feminism, patriarchal, like how do we frame that in a way that as we go back and we reread the text, we're like, okay, I see what you're getting at here. And then once I see what you're getting at here, why does that matter? Like, what does that change for me? Yeah. No, totally. I would say that the entire message of the book, um, at least in this in this particular iteration, is that the gospel is liberation from patriarchy. That's the entire case I'm trying to make. That from Genesis to Revelation, there is a progression in Scripture where patriarchy in the beginning of the Bible is the assumed ordering of creation. And by the time we get to Revelation, 
patriarchy has been dismantled fundamentally and that Jesus is the linchpin in the middle of the biblical narrative that turns the entire direction of scripture away from patriarchy into liberation. And so all of that to say, if you don't understand the cultural context of scripture, and I feel like everybody in every tradition says this, but it actually takes a lot of work to dig in and do the hard study of the biblical culture. But unless you do that, you really don't understand the Bible. And that's, I kind of, uh, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I sympathize a bit with the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the medieval period when it had the idea that we shouldn't give the Bible to lay people because it's it can become really distorted very quickly if you're not doing the deep study that's necessary to understand the text. Now, I don't believe we should take the Bible away from people, but what I am saying is that it took me three years of intensive study in seminary about one portion of uh, the culture and context of scripture to see all that I've begun to see in, in this particular conversation. And that opened my eyes to just how important it is for us to realize as we read the Bible, what we assume we understand, we should always immediately assume that we actually don't understand and that there's layers upon layers of meaning. Um, and so when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading Hebrew Bible and you're seeing these clobber passages, which say things like, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for this is an abomination. On the surface, you might just take that for what it says. Oh, clearly this is a condemnation of two men having sex. It's an abomination to God. And that's the end of the story. Well, there's actually 15 layers of meaning beneath that. Um, and when you begin to understand that patriarchy, which was the ordering of the ancient world, was built on three pillars. And those pillars were the oppression of women, the oppression of ethnic and economic minorities, and the oppression of effeminate men or men that were um, not living up to the culturally idealized standard of manhood. Those three pillars were how the ancient people in the Near East ordered their society. And like most cultures, they used religion to justify their bias. And so they took this culturally defined idea of oppressing these three groups of people, saying that women, eco economic and ethnic minorities, and effeminate men were lower than the dominant cultures, cisgender, heterosexual male, uh, they began to encode that in the writing of scripture and say, actually, this isn't just our bias, it's God's bias. This is how God ordered the world. And you actually see it emerge in the Bible. You begin to see it from Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham setting himself up as this patriarch, literally this leader over his family and his people. But even from the very beginning, when God appoints Abraham to be the leader of the nation of Israel, he also says, and my actual plan here is for all nations to be blessed through you. So we see at once how the Hebrew people in the writing of Genesis were trying to elevate this idea of patriarchy. And yet there was this divine spiritual wisdom from the very beginning that was saying, actually, this ordering that you're trying to establish right now is not where all of this is going. I'm actually trying to create a world where all people, all nations, all tribes, tongues, colors, genders, sexualities will stand on equal footing. Yeah. I think you really have to grasp how patriarchy emerged in the ancient cultures in order to begin understanding 
the clobber passages and anything the Bible says about sexuality or gender identity. Yeah. So this might not be a fair question, but you've done much more research on it than I have. So the way that, you know, the Western culture, shoot, just Christianity would use those passages, is that, does that also happen in, um, well, A, does the Jewish current Jewish culture or the ancient Jewish culture, like, do they have the same hang-up that the Western church does? And B, do the other Abrahamic faiths have the same hang-up for the same reasons or not at all? Is that not even really a good question? No, it's a great question. And this is one, it's it's really damning to uh, the conservative Christian Western movement and the Roman Catholic Church that Judaism has been way ahead of us uh, on these conversations um, by far, because, and I think I talked about this, I can't remember whether it was this book or the last one, but in the beginning of one of them, I talked about um, the Midrashic way of reading the text, and the way the Hebrew people come to the Bible is understanding that it has multiple layers of meaning, and that we're not going to take it literally, but we're going to see what it says for us in our culture, in our context. And so the Jewish people, by and large, have been affirming of LGBT people and our relationships for generations. They've been affirming of women in uh, in leadership roles for generations. Now, of course, there are other sects of Judaism, the ultra-Orthodox, for instance, that would look a lot more like a fundamentalist Christian in these ethics. But by and large, I mean, look at the state of Israel, who is run by... Jewish people who believe in following the uh, rules of Torah. It's also the only society in the Middle East that is uh, fully inclusive of LGBT people where marriage is legal, where Hmm. uh, LGBT people hold the same rights. So I would say Judaism as a whole um, kind of condemns the way that Western conservative Christians have misused and taken texts from the Bible and Uh, not understood their culture or context and tried to apply them in some literalistic fashion. And Islam's a whole different story, right? Um, It emerges from a patriarchal society, just like Judaism and Christianity. And in the Islamic world, I think you have the best image. If you want to see how patriarchy manifested in the time of Jesus, look at the modern Islamic world um, and how, how in ultra-Islamic countries, there is a really encoded patriarchy even in the operating of society today. Um, But I think the difference is for many Muslims in at least the Middle East, um, there's still the belief that that is of God and that is uh, what God has dictated from the very beginning. I think if you look at Western Muslims, it's a very different story. Just like us progressive Christians, I think most Muslims in the Western world are open-minded and willing to give up this literalistic interpretation of their scriptures um, and are moving towards an anti-patriarchal direction as well. spoke with someone recently and they had asked me kind of my hermeneutic of when I read scripture. And I was like, you know, I run everything through a lens of uh, if Jesus didn't talk much about it, then what do I hear him talking around it? And then how does that kind of inform my heart? Like, you know, I'm going to err on the side of Jesus every single time. Um, And so 
to talk about like an inclusive lens or an inclusive interpretation, you talk about a theologian called William Webb um, positing yeah. something, and I wrote this down and I can't read my writing. And so if I get the name of it wrong, correct me. But a hermeneutic, yeah. a redemptive, no, a redemptive movement yeah. hermeneutic, something like that. What is yep. that and kind of how does that work? And then how should that change the way that I read uh, scripture? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that I, when I discovered it, it it was like the, pulling the brick out of the bottom of my foundation of theology and everything fell apart. And if Dr. Webb heard me say that, he'd be mortified because he's still a conservative <laughs> evangelical and comes to different conclusions than I do by far. But basically, he he's not the first, but he's probably the first major evangelical scholar to posit the idea that kind of what I've said from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, there's a trajectory in Scripture, and that that's what God was always all about, revealing truth progressively over time. And so William Webb posited that God didn't reveal all truth at one point, but was slowly revealing it. And as God revealed more truth, he raises the ethical standard, because that's what humanity is able to bear at various periods in our evolution. And so just the example that I use all the time, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was an ethical innovation in the book of Leviticus because surrounding cultures taught that justice looked like if you killed somebody in my family, it was right for me to slaughter your whole village. Well, the Hebrew people come along and say, actually, our God says, if you kill someone in my family, I can only kill someone in your family. And that was an ethical innovation. But by the time we get to Jesus, Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, bless those who curse you, turn the other cheek and love your enemy. So he raises the standard, but it took 2,000 years from the time Leviticus was revealed, or 1,500 years, to when Jesus raised the standard again. So all of that to say, it's this fundamental belief in progressive revelation that God is calling us forward, and that continues beyond the Bible. And so William Webb posited in his book, uh, slaves, women, and homosexuals, that slavery and the equality of women weren't achieved in the New Testament, but that the New Testament was pointing us in that direction, and that the women's suffrage movements and the civil rights movement took the direction of scripture and took it to its logical conclusion, which was full liberation and equality for women and people of color. Even though the Bible itself doesn't say that, it's the idea that the Spirit of God is definitely pointing humanity in that direction in the pages of Scripture. And he has this beautiful quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's in the book, and it's something like, stop where the words of Scripture stop on these ethical issues is to fail to understand the movement in the heart of God, mm. that God wasn't calling us to institute slavery and keep that system no, we see from the way that the Hebrew Bible talks about slavery to the way Jesus talks about slavery, an incredible ethical movement. And we need to move beyond where even Paul gets to. But it's like a big sign. It's an arrow pointing us forward. And I would say the same thing you see with sexuality. I, uh, from the Hebrew Bible, you see very strong prohibitions. When you get to the New Testament, you see loosening prohibitions in the way that I would say homosexuality is not even addressed in the same way that it was addressed in the uh, Hebrew Bible. And in the book, I talk about how Jesus himself and the way he subverted patriarchy in his own life and the way he dealt with eunuchs and other sexual minorities 
point us in the direction of assuming that God's heart and God's desire is to liberate and include LGBT people into the life of the church as well. So if the trajectory of Scripture, and I I just want to be real clear, Brandon, I agree with you. If the trajectory of Scripture is basically everything is inclusive, um, that leads me to question, or it has led others to question me when I try to badly paraphrase you, is there even a role for clean and unclean, sin and unsin, because most of the time the pushback that I get is, you know, if you're going to, if you keep moving the line in the sand, eventually you're just standing in the ocean. Like you're just, nothing is unclean. Nothing is inherently evil. And so if we're thinking about uh, scripture that way and the gospel that way and the, 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 the story of Christ in a way that everything is being included and, and, and reconciled, is there still a reason to call anything unclean? Like, does that term even hold weight anymore, you know, for the years to come? Yeah, I think you, I'm glad you asked that question because I think you highlight a, uh, a mistake people make, which is unclean and sinfulness are not the same thing. The idea of clean and unclean is purely ritualistic. It's purely, um, it has no moral connotation at all. It's all about there is a God in heaven who has determined these standards about what is clean and unclean to him. And it's not apparent to humanity. And so we need to listen for revelation from God. Otherwise we wouldn't know what's clean or unclean. It's these arbitrary standards that I think very clearly in the new Testament, Paul says, get rid of this. Peter has his vision in Acts chapter 10, where God says, nothing that I have deemed to be clean shall be declared unclean. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't sin um, and not sinfulness, but our understanding of sin needs to move outside of this category of ritualized uh, purity codes and into what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And th- this goes into a much bigger conversation, which is actually the topic of the next book I'm right, working on, uh, where I dig into sexual ethics more deeply. But our whole idea, for instance, around sexuality as Christians so much of so many of our prohibitions are again arbitrary we we prohibit premarital sex primarily because we say it's not pleasing to god but i think the new testament abolishes that arbitrary uh, standard how do you know what is pleasing to god and what is not pleasing to god instead our sexual ethics should be rooted in what is healthy and whole for us because god's desire is that we would live whole and abundant lives and I think if we started thinking of sexual ethics that way, we might get rid of some of these arbitrary purity standards that say sex is only for the confines of marriage alone, because the majority of culture is going to have sex outside of marriage, and it's not going to be harmful to them, and it's not going to pull them away from God, and it's not going to cause them to live unhealthy lives. That was just a purity idea. Rather, we should be calling people to commitment. We should be calling people to healthy behaviors and self-control. Those are the things that are actually moral, that actually cause you to live a more abundant life. Um, And I think everything we can see in the person of Jesus, Jesus was not concerned with these ritualized ideas of what is good and what is bad. He was concerned with what is right in the here and now, what will help people's lives be better and more abundant and in the flow of shalom today, not what's making this arbitrary God in the sky angry if we don't do it. 
but there's so much there. We could talk for that for hours. We we could, but a two things uh, is the book under a hundred pages. Because if not, I'm gonna shoot you some form of an email. And it has it has to be based on the rules that you the arbitrary. I'm trying to get self I'm trying to get this hundred seventy five or two hundred would be amazing. Just so I have something that makes me look like a legitimate author. But uh, other than that, uh. all right. So that's the first thing. Second thing, when I hear you say all that, I hear a lot of that. But I'm gonna be real honest. That yeah. is a struggle for me because I have two beautiful daughters. And I when I hear you talking about that, like they're small now, but they won't be in a decade. And that thought, just the thought of it is terrifying. But like everything of my faith over the last decade, it's also been terrifying. Like I'm, yeah. there's so many places my brain goes. Let me just put it that way. That makes me uncomfortable. But usually when I'm uncomfortable, I grow. Uh, but <laughs> that terrifies yep. me. Um, so what would you say to a dad like that's listening to that right now that's going, all right, yeah, I, I had actually ordered your book. I was going to read it, Brandon. And then I'm hearing you say that this is okay. Um, or I hear you say that you're researching. Like, how, what do you say to the person in the back row that's like, you know, eyebrow went up. What did he just say? Like, I feel like you talked about earlier, you know, talking about the Roman Catholic Church might get you in trouble. I think that one might more. So what? how would oh, you yeah. assuage, assuage fears a bit? Uh, and I say that uh, personally. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to calm anyone's fears because what I'm going to say is, why, why do you feel that way? Um, like this is a deep dive into our spiritual psychology now because it's we've inherited culturally and religiously patriarchy. Like this idea that sexuality needs to be controlled and confined is literally the way the church keeps power. This is literally the way right now we're watching the evangelical church gain influence in this country because the Trump administration, for instance, has all of these policies that are anti-trans, pro-abortion. These are all sexual questions. This is how patriarchy works. And I believe patriarchy is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we begin to have these fears, I always say, when fear arises in us, we know we're not moving from a place um, where God is, because I really do believe uh, the presence of fear is the absence of God. I think we're not moving from a place of love and liberation. And that's not to condemn you or anybody else, because I have those same impulses of fear. But the question is the call to deeper reflection. It's why does it make us feel uneasy to think of, for instance, your daughters being in relationships that might not be marriage relationships, but they might have intimacy with somebody else. That's a hard question for a father or anyone to begin to think about, but it's also reality. Um, mm. It's also what happens for most people in our culture today. And so I just think that's a call to begin rethinking and reforming because it's just what is happening by and large. Almost every survey and study shows that a majority of people will engage sexually outside of marriage. And you ask a majority of those people if they experienced a broken heart or if they are, feel like a unclean withered flower or all the other bad youth group analogies that we were told. <laughs> and it's just not experientially true. Uh, and so if our theology, I, I say this all the time, and I think I said it on the last podcast, if theology and reality don't align, your theology is the problem, not reality. Mm. And there's something really wrong with the way our patriarchal sexuality doesn't match up with what people actually experience in their day-to-day -day lives. And 
that for me is what I want to explore. And like I said, I'm at the very beginning stages yeah. of writing this book on sexual ethics, but it's definitely worth exploring because experience says that our theology is wrong on this. Well, I think I don't, and I don't know why. So I've had this conversation at a high level with friends of mine that are in my peer group and age group. Um, yeah. But I never actually, and I don't know why when you said it, like I inherently thought of my kids, probably because I'm right underneath her. Um, and that, you're right, it is more about me. And I don't know what that is. I probably won't sleep tonight. And so thank you. Um, so, but it, 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 it's, it's, so I asked Serene, um, uh, Serene, uh, gosh, I can't think of her name right Jones. now. Yeah, from uh, Union Theological, uh, you know, what, what the things are that matter for seminaries that are training pastors for the, for the coming years. And she didn't necessarily list one, that one, but it's definitely on the list, you know, uh, LGBTQ concerns, uh, the way that we treat others, you know, immigration, but also, you know, the, the view on marriage matters and pre-sexual or premarital uh, sex also matters. But um, I think for me, it, it hits it hits too close to home, and so from yeah. there, I'm gonna hit pause and I'm gonna pivot back to your book because I am. If you could see me, I'm squirming, um, and I'm not gonna edit any of this out because I'm gonna try to be as transparent as possible. So there is there's a chapter. Uh, I think it's chapter five, uh, leveling the ground, and I want to quote you a bit here if that's all right. Um, so you talk about Jesus's very behavior and social position within the Roman Empire also would have caused him to be viewed as feminine when contrasted with the citizen men of the Roman Empire. I've never heard anybody say that. And so what do you mean by the way that he postures himself, the way that he presents himself, the way that he, I would argue, preaches, presents him in a feminine mentality? Because then you go further and talk about the crucifixion as a form of emasculation, which is also something I've never really broached. Uh, But when I read it, I found myself nodding like, yeah, this makes sense. I'd never heard this before, but yes, this makes sense. Yeah. So that's my favorite part of the book and not to toot my own horn here, but I think like that's the part I'm proudest about because I began to discover that this is deep in the scholarship. And I, I, I like that part of the book the best because I quote so many amazing people who say groundbreaking, mind blowing things. But again, Understanding the culture that Jesus was in, once you begin to unpack it, you're like, this guy was really radical, like not just in some weird political way, like the way he lived his life would have caused anyone who saw him walking down the street in the Greco-Roman society to raise their eyebrows and say, what is this freak doing? Like he's different. And it's the uh, Jesus, the way he held himself, first of all, as somebody who preached against empire, period, that enough is to say he's anti-status quo, he's anti-patriarchy, because he called out the powers that were, and the powers were all cisgender men who tried to be sexually dominant. Jesus, as far as we know, unless you're Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code, was unmarried. Uh, Jesus spent his life Uh, calling men away from their families to follow him, calling women away from their families to follow him. And the way he presented himself in the empire, calling um, for the deconstruction of power structures, that posture itself is feminine um, in Greco-Roman consciousness. Because in the Greco-Roman world, again, your status in society was literally tied to what you did with your penis, to put it uh, very bluntly. 
And if you were going to be a powerful, influential person in society, you were a dominant sexual penetrator and also a military uh, militant penetrator. You would have fought in the army or at least been in high powers of government that would have allowed you to have penetrative uh, influence over society. And Jesus was not that. He resisted that. In fact, he hung out with the people that were the worst of the worst in Roman society. And I think something I didn't spend a lot of time in the book looking at, but is worth deep, deep study for anyone interested in this, is how Jesus, when he speaks about and hangs out with eunuchs, eunuchs are the worst of the worst of the worst in Roman society. Because these are men who either by choice or as a punishment or by birth, gave up their ability to use their sexual organs in the penetrative way, which was what made you powerful and manly in the Roman Empire. So these were men who literally became lower than women in the status uh, quo of the empire. And Jesus comes along and says some amazing things about eunuchs becoming eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom and being first in the kingdom. Like that kind of language would have made Jesus and this is not meant to be a shock jock overstatement, like a radical queer theologian in the midst of a Greco-Roman society. You don't say that about a eunuch and you don't identify with a eunuch. Um, and we could keep going down this path. I actually think Jesus, um, the crucifixion aspect is actually where Jesus most um, profoundly becomes an image of somebody who's emasculated and queer and in solidarity with women and people of color and LGBT people. But in his life, he definitely used his position of privilege as a male, and he gave up a lot of that privilege that society would have bestowed on him if he would have allowed it. Um, and Paul's the great example, as the last thing I'll say, uh, of somebody who, even as a Jewish person, used his patriarchal power in his life before Jesus, um, and he was a dominant male who went around killing and had the blessing of the empire and the religious establishment. And then when he comes to find Christ, lots of scholars would assume that the Apostle Paul may have been married and he left his wife. And um, that's a whole, not, I'm opening up so many cans mm -hmm. of worms here, but mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and went and followed this celibate rabbi um, which is such a queer thing to do. It's, anyways. You said that was the last thing you were going to say, but I'm going to ask you to say more. Um, yeah. So how is the cross then, a, like how is, the, how is the crucifixion itself an emasculating symbol? Like how, how does, basically, um, so if, I wanna, if I'm going to oversimplify it, like the cross for me would equate to uh, a public lynching. Um, you yeah. know, 60, 70 years ago here in America. So how do those two emasculate. This is the stuff that really got me jazzed because it's so, so eye-opening. Just the information about the cross is always right in front of us. Like this is not hidden deep knowledge, but nobody ever told me this and it makes so much sense. Um, the reason the cross was such a profound um, and horrific means of execution was not just because it was a painful way to die, but if you read the crucifixion account of Jesus, it actually mirrors what they did to anyone who was crucified from being stripped down naked before um, the council that was judging him and being mocked and dressed in feminine clothing, which uh, was this um, 
robe that they put on him and this crown of thorns. This whole process, this whole drama is literally meant to be taking the masculinity away from the person they're about to crucify. So they're taking Jesus from being a man to being less than a man, parading him through the city as this powerless, um, the word that uh, Diane Swancutt uses, um, they took this man who was being proclaimed king of the Jews and they made him a queen. Like this idea that he was this powerless little thing that the empire was penetrating with its power. And then they put him on the cross. And the reason Romans used nails instead uh, was because in this hyper patriarchal culture, penetration, it was all sexual, was meant to symbolize that he was literally being, to put it crassly, raped by the empire, that they were dominating him. And so Jesus goes to the cross and is pierced in his hands and his side and his brow and this is all symbolic of him being destroyed by the empire, hmm. um, emasculated. And the other thing that was really eye-opening is that every account of crucifixion outside of the account of Jesus, it's really clear also that the empire physically raped the person they were about to crucify. And when you begin to think that Jesus likely was physically raped by the Roman centurions before he was uh, crucified, that adds a whole nother layer to, one, how profound the love of God is uh, for abused and for those who are survivors of sexual assault, that God in the flesh, the incarnation of God, literally was put through some of the most horrific forms of abuse that has also been perpetuated by the church, by the way, um, that our, our Savior went through that. That's profound. And it also says something when we believe in our theology that Jesus under, undertakes this willingly. That's the power here, is that Jesus goes to the cross knowing that he's going to go through this emasculating process, and he does it willingly as the act of salvation. And if that's true, then the resurrection is the ultimate subversion and victory and the humiliation of this entire patriarchal system the most powerful empire that ever was, tried to crucify uh, Jesus, tried to emasculate him with their patriarchal power. And the risen Christ comes back, still penetrated, still bearing the wounds as the risen victorious lamb, not through crucifixion, not through dominating his enemies, but through the power of forgiveness, grace, and love. And again, yeah. Uh, there's so much I could dig into that, but it's just such a beautiful, profound image. I want to, I want to, I want to push that further because as you're talking, and I don't think this is in the book. I'm certain that it's not. So, how then does that uh, feminizing of Christ relate to you know at Easter, which we all, well, Christians celebrated recently? I'm not entirely certain when this will air. Um, where, you know, you have, if it weren't for women, you know, the gospel, you know, the, it's the women that are coming to get the disciples and the apostles. Like, it's the women yeah. that are yelling out, no, come and see. Like, it's it's empty. So how do those two relate then? You know, the, the empire has, has, you know, feminized him, and then it's the matriarchal voice mm. that pushes it forward. Yeah, I actually have not really thought deeply about that, but it is really a interesting thing to think about. As Jesus is emasculated, it makes sense on one hand that the men would be more afraid than the women, and so the men leave Jesus at the cross and go and hide, and it's his mother and Mary that are standing there weeping, watching this happen. 
it yeah. says something about the power of femininity. It's a beautiful statement about uh, men not being always uh, the most powerful or the ones that are the bravest. But like you said, it was the women who stood by Christ at the cross. It's the women who took his body to the tomb. It's the women who were there when he rose again. Um, and he rises again as um, Chris Ferlingos, I quote in the book, says the image of the Lamb of God in Revelation risen is this beautiful image in the ancient mind of masculinity and femininity in perfect balance because you have the penetrated and pierced one, but also the one standing in dominance and victory. And I think that's that's what God desires for the church and for the world, this equality and balance and equilibrium of masculinity and femininity, of culture and sexuality all standing equal in the beauty of diversity. Towards the tail end of your book, and I promise I'm wrapping this up, Brandon. So towards the tail end of your book, there is appendices after appendices. I think there's three appendices. Um, I I like those because as I read through, I'm like, oh, I've read some of these before. And then I realized there were just different things that you'd written in the past that all kind of feed into this. But I found some of the logical questions that I would have um, were easily answered there. But something that I didn't see or I missed or I glanced over, uh, and you talk about it at the very beginning, I think in chapter one or maybe in the introduction, of the risk of psychological and physical, but really psychological harm to those that are classified as other, as unclean, as unworthy, as unredeemable by the, the at least the church and the country that we live in. And so I want to try to end with that. So, I mean, the the marginalization of, of LGBTQ and that entire community uh, causes just some massive damage, you know, with suicides and with homelessness and with so many other things. And so for those listening that are like, you know, I, I can do better in my church, I can do better in my community, I can do better in my family, possibly, depending on who's listening, like, where would you send people to the, to to try to, to do better? Because unfortunately, the church always seems to... F- to follow way too slow. Like if we're being guided by the Holy Spirit, we're definitely not listening. We're being dragged, but we need to be leading this. So where, how do we begin to repair the psychological harm uh, that our culture, that our proof texting and our literal flat reading, our flat Stanley reading of the Bible has caused? Yeah, it's a good and important question. I think you said something really profound and it's something that it's hard to see from the inside of the church, but it really, God always, uh, I think God gives the the message to God's people first. And the pattern that we see throughout the Bible and in the modern era is that God's people generally reject the message. And it's always the outsiders or uh, the unclean, so to speak, that get it first. And I think culture has is doing far more and far better than the church at reducing harm and addressing psychological damage. And because of that, um, most of the resources that exist I lost you. How long ago did you lose me? (laughs) Well, it sounded like your phone literally dropped to the ground. Um, The last thing that I heard was because of that, most of the resources that we have are outside, and then it sounded like glass shattering. So I hope you didn't drop your phone. 
No, that was must. It's the judgment of God coming down. But uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, are you able to? Are you able to pick up where you left off there? Yeah, most of the resources that exist are outside of the church. It's organizations like the Trevor Project and the Tyler Clemente Foundation, and Faith in America and Glad. Uh, these organizations are doing great work to receive the youth that we're pushing out of the church and that are being rejected from families, and they're giving them resources that they need to heal and find restoration and renewal. Um, so I would definitely point people, first and foremost, outside of the church to um, things that are actually going to help the psychological healing of LGBT youth and LGBT people in general that are have been hurt by the church. But for those who are within the institution, uh, for evangelical people in general, I would say the most important first step that you can take and that you need to take to reduce harm is to begin by changing your rhetoric and posture. There are just, there are some things that we just cannot say and cannot preach and cannot believe anymore because they're so discredited. They're so untrue. And the fruit certain ways of posturing ourselves, um, the fruit that it bears is just too clear. It's damage, it's death. And so those things are, we've got to stop telling people that their sexuality or gender identity is a choice and that having um, a queer or different sexuality or gender identity is fundamentally broken or an abomination. You don't have to change your theology and believe all the crazy heresy that I said on this podcast. <laughs> you don't have to ever embrace that. That's fine. But stop telling people that their sexuality is something they can choose or not choose. Because the distress that causes in somebody's mind to know that they're not actually choosing this, and yet they're being told they need to stop choosing it, that creates such a cycle of despair that leads people down the path of self-harm, self-hatred. And not only does that cause them physical and psychological trauma, but that makes them not want to buy into this whole Christian thing because, again, experientially they know it's not true. And like I said earlier, when your theology and reality come clashing together, it's the theology that needs to change. So I would consider it a victory uh, for all of my work is if we could just stop getting Christians to stop telling LGBT people that their sexuality, their gender identity is fundamentally broken and that it's a choice. If we get rid of that rhetoric, I think we would see such a decrease in hostility between our two communities because um, LGBT people and gay Christians, the reason that so many of us are so afraid and so um, against so much of the church it's because they keep saying these things that we just know that the world knows are fundamentally untrue and um, are causing harm. And if the church would just take a few steps to change its posture and tone and heart, I think we would have a different conversation moving forward. And so that's yeah. what I would say. Um, and then, like I said, point people to resources that are outside the church that are really uh, helping bring healing and hope to LGBT people. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, where do we point them to get to you now the book is is everywhere and it'll also be in the show notes from i believe is it is it cascade which what's whip and stock but it's the same thing um but how do they get in touch with you how do they hear you preach because i'll be honest like when you get on twitter or not twitter when you get on instagram and you preach like 
I just, I'm, I'm sucked. And like, I, I just, I like to hear you preach. So how do they hear you? How do they get connected with you and some of the stuff that you're doing? Yeah. Well, if you go to brandonrobertson.com and it's Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-A-N, uh, Robertson.com, I have links to the church website where we have YouTube of all my sermons and, um, books and blogs and all of that fun stuff. Um, so that would be the best way. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on. We're going to have to do it again. Yeah, I would love to. Next time, though, don't scare me. Don't scare me. <laughs> um, I'll so. try not to. And thanks for staying <laughs> up late. I hope you can get some sleep tonight. So. <laughs> I've really struggled with how to end this one. Really have. And so I just want to say just very little words, but the issue of homosexuality is not going away. Gender binaries is not going away. The way that we view sex is not going away. And human diversity is full of such a wide range of things that are loved and beautiful and created by God. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you have not yet, consider becoming a patron supporter of the show. I'll talk with you all in a week. Talk to you soon. Bye.